0: Coming up, acclaimed author Lyndon McIntyre talks about his fifth novel, The Only Café.
1: Just sitting around the kitchen telling stories will get you a cup of tea, a drink of booze, <laughs> or you know, a sandwich. But yeah. it's not going to earn you an income unless you're really, really ready to fight your way into that business. So journalism seems to be a happy middle place where you can tell stories, people will pay you. And they will also kick you out into the heavy traffic of life experience where you will learn stuff. I had a a story in a country or a story that's based on the history of a country where history never ends. Mm -hmm. What I found uh, in in journalism was sometimes when you find uh, the, the, the primary witness to an event, it's very difficult to get the witness to give you a clear account of the event. There's no such a thing as writing a book, in my opinion. Right. You sit down and you, you write a line, you write a page. Uh, if you sit down to say, I'm today I am writing a book, you will go back to bed. <laughs>
0: Hey folks, welcome to the House of Krause. Come on in. The weather has started to cool off a little bit. Well, outside the House of Krause, it has anyway. And it always puts us in the mind of sitting by the fireplace. It's fall. You get the fire going. You read a book. Now, you have a world of books to choose from. We're going to recommend one for you today though. It's Lyndon McIntyre's novel, The Only Cafe. Now, this is about... The attempts of Cyril Cormier, he's a 25-year-old aspiring journalist, to unravel the disappearance and apparent death of his Lebanese-born father, Pierre. Now, Pierre was a lawyer who came to Canada as a refugee under really obscure circumstances during the Lebanese Civil War in the early 1980s. This is a fictional story, but there's an underlying basis of truth that comes from Lyndon McIntyre's experiences as a wartime correspondent. He was there. He saw things. He's going to tell you stories here that are unpleasant, but you'll see how they kind of feed in to the imagination that went into writing The Only Cafe. First up, though, Lyndon and I had to talk just a little bit about where we're from. We're both from the east coast of Canada, different parts of Nova Scotia, but mm, close enough. And we share a lot of the same thing. We share a love of storytelling. That's where this interview starts. Before we get into the book itself, there's a lot to talk there and we'll unpack that in a little while. But we're both East Coasters. Yeah. You're splitting your time now between Toronto and... Sydney, Cape, Cape Breton. Or, or Cape Breton. I, I'm a little further south. You're of South that. Shore. Yeah, I'm a South Shore guy. Big name down there, Krause. <laughs> That's Right. There is a, a, a place called Kraus. There,
1: there used to be a member of Parliament that I knew quite well, Lloyd, Lloyd Kraus. Yeah,
0: Lloyd Krause, Here's a little tangential. Uh, this story is very about East Lloyd Coast, Krause. by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Lloyd Kraus, who was a legend down yes. there. Uh He, when I was first working in radio, he came in to record some ads, and we used to use reel-to-reel tapes uh, in those days. And I was the youngest guy at the studio, a place called CKBW in Bridgewater, Nova Scotia. Yeah. But they thought, how badly can he bugger this up? Just push a button and record, Lloyd. And so I recorded everything, and somehow when it played back, it was all backwards. And I'm not sure how it happened, I'm not sure why it happened, I still don't know. But Lloyd, you know, he's a busy guy, he's a yeah. you know, famous guy down there. And uh, he was so gracious with me, did it all again. Another wow. 20 minutes of reading, whatever it was, but he was very gracious to me. So Lloyd Lloyd Kraus has a has a no relation has a has a place in my heart. Uh, let's talk about being from the East Coast, though, and telling stories like I just did. Yeah. You grew up in a small place, mm-hmm. and the tradition or of kitchen parties of of people telling tales to one another, and that yeah. has influenced your entire career. First of all, the the only uh, sort of medium
1: there there were two media one was radio Mm -hmm. and radio was wall-to-wall stories back in those days newscasts and then stories serials and sitcoms and the whole thing and and then of course the other medium was the visit and the visitor who could tell a story could be the most decrepit person in the community (laughs) but was welcome Right. Because the visitor would bring news. The visitor would bring a, a kind of an entertainment value to the, to the evening. And so this visitor would come in and sit down. And as a kid, uh, I came to the insight that the two ways to get the attention of adults is to tell a story <laughs> or play music. And I really didn't have the patience or the talent to play the music, but I had an ear for these stories. And I said, wow, you know, you can take anything that happens in the community, and you can turn that into a story. Just give it a shape, you you, you, you pump up the, the characters a little bit, and you give them the dialogue that's <laughs> yeah. got wit in it and irony in it, and it becomes a story that adults, everybody will sit around and listen to. So it's it's
0: a perfect vehicle for your ego if you want to develop <laughs> it into something. It's almost like you were doing journalism when you were a kid, well, that's telling the, these stories.
1: that's the other thing. I mean, journalism, good journalism is storytelling. And good storytelling is journalism. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, early in my life, I realized that uh, it's necessary to earn an income. And just sitting around the kitchen telling stories will get you a cup of tea, a drink of booze, <laughs> or you know, a sandwich. But yeah. it's not going to earn you an income unless you're really, really ready to fight your way into that business. Mm-hmm. So, journalism seemed to be a happy middle place where you can tell stories. People will pay you. And they will also kick you out into the heavy traffic of life experience <laughs> where you will learn stuff. And that's what I was fortunate enough to be able to do for for a long, long time and and did. The, the problem arises as time goes by. And you find yourself, yeah, I've told a lot of stories, but there's an awful lot I didn't tell. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that never fitted into the format of the newspaper or the newscast uh, or whatever that I... I'm carrying all that stuff around. It's, it's got value, but it also some of it is troubling. And some of it should be uh, vented in some manner. And, and I think that happens to an awful lot of journalists over time. They spend a lot of time talking to each other, telling war stories, sitting in bars mm-hmm. and, and drinking their way through this stuff and developing even worse problems. So at a certain point, I said, I've got to find a healthier way <laughs> to unpack what, what, uh, what I've been,
0: had the good fortune or the bad fortune to live through. My guest is Lyndon McIntyre. The book is called The Only Cafe, and it's in bookstores and online and everywhere that you buy books uh, right now. So that was a nice segue into the book. You, want, you have to unpack some of these things that you've seen. So there was a fascinating story that I read about you in Beirut in the early 80s, wars raging, and you're in a hospital. Can you tell that story? Because again, it doesn't exactly 100. percent – It doesn't appear in the book, but I have a feeling it was that spark. That
1: it, that... Was, it was a spark. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of sparks that d- never made it into the into the newscast. Right. Never made it into the documentary I was doing. But you're, you're traveling around in in a, in a condition of total chaos. Um, I think that it, it was the city, city of Sidon actually, which mm-hmm. figures into this book. And um, it had been bombed by the Israelis. It had been bombed by the Palestinians. Like, every—the place was smoking.
0: And, yeah, very actively while you are there. While
1: I'm right. there. You know, while I'm there. And, and um, we went to a hospital, and uh, it was a hot, muggy day in June. And uh, we go to this hospital, and uh, it— the, Stench still stays with me of like wounded, damaged people, and the smell of antiseptic and and whatever, and bandages and 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 overworked, overstressed medical people. And so we talked to a doctor, we talked to a nurse, we shot stuff, and 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 then the crew starts to wander around the hospital, just getting visuals. Mm-hmm. And I was hanging around this waiting area, and it was like a reception desk in a hospital, central place. And uh, I saw this little girl sitting there in a chair. She was about four or maybe three. She seemed to be about four years old. Little Beautiful little kid with black hair and um, and big brown eyes. And she was just kind of sitting there staring off into space. And it was a very hot day, as I said. And she was huddled in a blanket. And I'm saying, why have they got her wrapped in a blanket? I mean, there's sweat bubbling out of her face. So there was nobody around. So I go over and I open the blanket just to sort of let some air in. And she, ne- she never even reacted to me opening the blanket. And when I opened the blanket, I saw why the, like, her legs were gone from the thighs down. Two little bloody stumps sitting there. And at that point, a nurse showed up and said, what are you? I said, I'm just trying to give the yeah. kid some air. And she says, no. And she closed the blanket up again. And I said, what happened? What happened to her? And she says, we don't know. Uh, do you know who she, We don't know who she is. Uh, she said, uh, somebody found her sitting on a pile of rubble that had obviously been her home. And there was nobody left. Just her sitting there with her legs gone. Yeah. And I said, what happens to her now? And she said, well, there's a uh, relief agency in Europe have volunteered to fly her to Germany and they're going to try and fix her. And I'm looking at the face of this little girl and saying there's no fixing that. You might be able to attach artificial limbs but you will not fix what has happened to her inside. And it was one of those things and there were a number of those occasions where you go past what you're looking at Mm -hmm. and you go into the meaning of what you're looking at. And the meaning that kept striking me in the head everywhere I turned there was that what it, what I'm looking at is not over this little girl will be will become today what is she she's probably 50 years old I don't know <laughs> and um, the young people the kids who have gone through this have been altered fundamentally. The witnesses to what happened to them have been altered fundamentally. And wherever they go in time and space, they will carry that damage with them. And then it suddenly clicks into everything else, like like what I grew up with on the East Coast, mm-hmm. veterans of World War One, veterans of World War II, veterans of Korea. The people who you knew had great stories to tell but wouldn't tell them. Yeah. Because there was something about the story that was either too complex, too difficult, or too ugly,
0: or to they had pushed to the back, of their, the back to of their mind just to be able to move forward. To be able to move forward. So, how do you process all of that? As a you're working as a journalist, that little girl is theoretically a story for you, or part of a story yes. professionally. But you're a person; you can't help but be moved, or mm. or and and how then do you? Remain objective.
1: Well, that's an inter- That's a very interesting question, and 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 I've thought a lot about it. Uh, you know, in the in the in the refugee camp where a lot of this this action happens, uh, where there was a huge massacre, and it's a historical fact. Uh, and um, I found myself asking afterwards, um, how did you actually go through that day in that place? And and I realized that in extremely demanding circumstances, and awful lot of the emotional uh, equipment that we have, it kind of closes down. Right. And you're just looking and smelling and tasting and feeling physically, but not emotionally or psychologically, until afterwards. Because you couldn't, like, if, if you emotionally registered fully everything that you're looking at, I think you'd go crazy. Mm-hmm. So for some reason, there's a defense mechanism in the individual that just sort of shuts this stuff down. We'll deal with this later. And I think that's where a lot of PTSD comes. You say, well, you know, how could you have gone through that? Well, you go through it as a kind of a zombie in a way. And it's only afterwards that things start to light up again and, 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 and are revived. And then, holy God, you know? and it's it's. The other other thing I came away from is that there are so many people with great stories that can't tell the story because the reality of what they went through suddenly comes alive and they suddenly say, I did something. I never thought I could do and I now can't believe I did it but I had to do it or I wouldn't be here. So it's a very complex business, a very complex phenomenon. That doesn't usually make it into the story you're telling on the CBC or in the Globe and Mail or on you know CFRB or wherever. Yes. Uh, it's 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 a it's a part of the story that stays in you, and either turns you into a a kind of a zombie or or turns you into a sick person, or hopefully a smart person <laughs> if you have the
0: machinery to process. It. Is it a catharsis to fictionalize? all these things that happen to you and then Mm. get them out on the page as a way of of getting them out of your head in a way? And is it also taking a giant story, this story, which centers around a a, a handful of people, one in particular, Cyril Cormier, if by having a human face that we can follow from page one right Mm. through to the very end is our doorway into understanding a much larger and much, almost incomprehensibly big story. That's a big question. I'm sorry.
1: No, no, <laughs> and, and it's absolutely it, it's spot on. I mean, because I believe that we find our way into big ideas and and big insights through small mm-hmm. portals. And uh, I carried this particular story. Well, the, the you know the central story, the massacre of Sabra Shatila, the the civil war in Lebanon. I carried that around in my head for a long, long time. I would never have presumed, oh, well, I'm going to write that story because I know guys and women who spent the 25 years sure. sitting there in the middle of it who, who know, who've forgotten more than I than I could ever learn about it. So I'm not going to try that. But sooner or later, I will be writing a story about an idea, and, and this experience will provide that access point. Uh, the book is not about the massacre of Sabra and Shatila. It's about how the consequences of violence move through time and space, mm-hmm. carried by the witnesses to the victimhood. As the victims are dead, sure. but the witnesses to the victimhood, the loved ones and the relatives, will carry this experience around. And and suddenly I said, I want I want to like I want to go directly into that idea. I've flirted with it in other books. I want to go directly there in this one. And I suddenly realized, yeah, I. I'm going to have a guy who was part of the problem, who was part of the ugliness, uh, who carried around his secrets, who set them aside someplace and and reinvented himself. And I'm going to have his estranged son who's trying to dig them out of him. But then he disappears. So where does the son turn? Well, the son ends up turning to where his father turned. Uh, to, to try to rationalize and come to terms with some of this stuff with a guy he knows shared the experience. Right. And he initially expects, well, this will be easy. He and th- this guy is kind of like me. We're both going to unpack this awful stuff. Yeah. Then he suddenly realized, no, no, the other guy doesn't want to go there for complicated reasons. And Pierre, the dad, keeps pushing it and pushing it, and then Pierre disappears. Yeah. So now the son comes along and he's led by a strange device that his father invented called a a, a roast yeah, yeah, as opposed yeah. to a, a memorial yeah like uh, imagine like
0: um yeah like a like a wake yeah oh well, we'd call it a wake yeah, he, yeah, he, yeah, yeah so yeah. he
1: says you know he's he seems to think that his time is limited so mm-hmm. he in his you know his his final arrangements he says if and when i go i don't want a funeral or a memorial i want to i want a roast yeah. and i want to have it at the only cafe and i want this guy <laughs> to be in, to be the, the the head of the whole f- yeah. anyway uh, the guy is 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 trying to unpack stuff with this other fellow who resists. And uh, the son is uh, is left with the job
0: of, of sorting it all out. Now, I lost the thread of your question, but... Well, what I was saying about the... Is it cathartic for you? Yeah. And I'm speaking with Lyndon McIntyre. The book is called The Only Cafe. It's in bookstores right now. Is it cathartic for you after some of the terrible things that you saw, and we detailed some of them in the first segment, to find a way to... Blend fact and fiction in a way, and get it out, and maybe get it out of your head. I hope so. I don't think. At the catharsis
1: is a strange thing. Catharsis Mm -hmm. happens without you realizing it's a catharsis. Right, right. You can't make catharsis. You can't make catharsis happen. So I believe that it's. You know, these things keep popping back into my head over the years, and and maybe. They won't any or maybe if they do, they will. They will have found a, a rational context. Mm-hmm. So now I can say, well, that, that that's a learning experience rather than a sort of a delayed emotional reaction. Right. So yeah, I hope so, and and um, and I hope that by actually sitting down and and putting together some extraordinary violence that happened in a period of like about forty-eight or. 60 hours, starting with an assassination of a new head of state in that country, which really happened, uh, with the possible involvement of my my protagonist in it. And then the the horrifying consequences, the fallout from that, which involved a massacre of maybe 2,000 people and his involvement in that. So I just happened to wander into the middle of all this stuff as a reporter and have been like puzzled. A, by my own strange response to it at the time, puzzled by what it sort of told me about human nature at the time. And it hopefully is maybe cathartic or certainly uh, a a kind of epiphany. I don't know what. The writing of a book that, that sort of forces me to to boil all this stuff down into something that makes sense to people who weren't there.
0: And focus it for yourself, yeah, perhaps, and, f- and, it, it, and and find that, you know, we were talking earlier about the, finding a portal into a big story. Maybe yeah. this is your own personal portal into understanding this story. I think
1: so. And, and, uh, and I realize that this might be happening at the place in the book where I spent a long time saying, "How am I going to write about an assas- a very mm-hmm. important political assassination, and how am I going to write about uh, the the in, you know the the geopolitical response to that, which involved the occupation of a of an Arab capital by the Israeli yeah. army, and then followed by a, a, a horrifying massacre, and then I suddenly realize as I'm writing it, it's it's all one." Big scene. Yeah. That whole thing is one big scene. And instead of having to write three books, yeah. it sort of gets all boiled down into a few pages. Yeah. And it's, it, it all seems to hold together. And I said, well, you know what? This, this is the first time I've actually synthesized that entire period in, in, in a reasonable way. Uh, without uh, feeling sorry for myself or without trying to project myself into it as somebody who
0: was badly affected by it. I wonder now, as you're sitting down to start writing a book like this, as a journalist, you go into a story not knowing exactly what you're going to find. Mm -hmm. And as Alan King told me, as a documentary filmmaker, uh, the great documentary filmmaker Alan King once said to me, the story is over when I run out of money. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, yours was a little different, uh, but you're over there, and the story is sort of over when the story is over, when it it, it winds up and comes to a conclusion. But you don't know what that conclusion is going to be. As an author of fiction, I wonder if you have an end point as you sit down and start writing the first page. Uh, Sometimes. uh,
1: The the last novel I did, Punishment, um, I had an idea for the ending of that book, because I had a pretty clear idea how the book was going to unfold. Right. I, this one, I did not know how it was going to end. I really did not until it, it kind of ended itself. And this sounds like melodramatic, but I literally got up one morning at 4 o'clock in the morning. I was in bed, and I said, I'm going to write the ending. Yeah. And some people may find it an unsatisfactory ending. I don't know. But endings are different things yep. to different people. Uh, my endings, I prefer to keep... Uh, consistent with with reality, which is that, in, in my view, nothing ends <laughs> until it ends. That's right. For us, yeah, it, yeah. you know, it physically, it ends physically, for us, and, yeah. and 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 uh, existentially. Mm-hmm. So, uh, things go on and on, and uh, and sometimes uh, people who read books and read fiction they want things to kind of be concluded and, and wrapped up, and and it depends on who the reader is. Sometimes it is, whether you intend it
0: to be or not. I think we were, for so long, fed you know, a, a, a constant string of movies and novels that had a little bow at the end. Yeah. And we got used to that. But shows like The Sopranos yeah. just ending, well, going to black screen, and, yeah. and and people would argue it. I think people are a little bit more uh, accustomed now to things not being wrapped up in little pretty bows. And there's a genre now where you make up your own ending. And,
1: and I think in a really good novel... Um, you're left thinking about mm-hmm. where did he go? What did he do? What happened when these two fellas went to that place? Yeah. Uh, who knows? Figure, you know, think yeah, it figure through. Figure it out yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, a- anything might have happened because I can't take it to the absolute end because there is no absolute end. Uh, I guess the tidiest ending is when everybody you dies. Drop a bomb on everybody. <laughs> everybody <laughs> dies. At the end. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, but... Uh, in this particular case, I had a, a story in a country or a story that's based on the history of a country where history never ends. Mm-hmm. Uh, people say, well, what year did the civil war in Lebanon end? No, we don't even know if it's ended yet. Yeah. It is a permanently divided country and the divisions are related to the, so many of the divisions of the Middle East, which go back through time. And, and have to do with an awful lot of external manipulation and interference with the internal affairs of the country. And so uh, the civil war the, of, of, in Lebanon is, probably, is still unfolding all over the place. The civil war in, in Syria will go, go on and on and on longer than we will. Well, and
0: there's no end point for these. It's not like World War One or two, Where somebody where sits down it- in a room and they sign it's over now. Yeah.
1: And even then you could argue it's not, you know, mm-hmm. World War I never ended. Yeah. So uh, I don't want to digress yeah. <laughs> into that stuff. But uh, but at the end of the day, a, a novel, a fictional uh, story uh, continues on. If it's any good, it continues on in the head of the reader. And I think that is mm-hmm. the biggest payoff for anybody. When I read a book, uh, I, I read uh, Lincoln in the Bardo this, right. this summer, and I didn't particularly enjoy the book as I was reading. I enjoyed the writing. Right. But I can't get it out of my head. I, I now imagine spirits... <laughs> taking control and trying to make me think stuff. Right. So, uh, so that that is a good book to me. It's a book that stays in your head, and 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 infiltrates everything that you're doing and
0: and seeing. So, is the end of a book more important than the beginning? Well, no. <laughs> because if you don't have a good beginning, nobody's going to read right. to
1: the end. So you you know that that the practical thing, you have to engage people early on. And if, if it's a really good story and if it's got a lot of good ideas in it and a lot of strong character uh, and and memorable moments, um, people will forgive you if you haven't kind of tied it all up with mm-hmm. a bow around it at the end. Because they will be left with characters and ideas and and just a narrative to think about and to carry around with them for as long as they got functioning minds. Yeah, that's right. And, as
0: long as the synapses are, they, uh, are firing. As long as they're firing. <laughs> uh I guess it's like writing a lead for a story, you know yeah, that that first paragraph in whatever story that, you're writing, yeah. uh, and I write a lot, I do a lot of newspaper writing, and i I torture myself over those Absolutely. leads because you want to make sure that people read past the third line,
1: yes, in the old days when I was starting out in journalism, you had to cram everything into the lead right because the presumption was, well, a lot of people don't have time. This is sort of what drives social media today. Yeah. Cram everything in the lead. who what, where, when, and why. and and then, Everything is of diminishing importance until you get to the end. Well, then that turned around. Yeah. Uh, so that you engage people in the lead with a thought, an idea, a line, a character, a moment, and and then you allow it to unfold in the way uh, in the way life unfolds. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's absolutely important to engage people at the beginning if you want them to be there uh, for the ending. And uh, and so I, I spent a lot of time thinking about Well, how am I going to start this? How how do you engage people? Uh, you can't sort of
0: preach at them. Mm-hmm. You create the scene. Um, I'm speaking with Lyndon McIntyre. The book is called "The Only Cafe." It's in fine bookstores everywhere. It's online. It's everywhere that you can uh, that you can find books. Uh, we've been talking about the genesis of of this book, how the seeds were planted while you were uh, a correspondent in uh, in Beirut and in Lebanon. Um, tell me what you want people to take away from this book. How that. Memory
1: is not as uh, clear-cut mm-hmm. as as we want it to be. That people remember things in in a variety of ways. Uh, people remember things in part. People remember things selectively. Some people, you know, uh, have have clear and 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 complete memories mm-hmm. of of everything. But. Um, What I found uh, in in journalism was sometimes when you find uh, the the, the primary witness to an event, it's very difficult to get the witness to give you a clear account of the event. Now, is that because they forget? Is that because they uh, want to edit the memory? Is that because they have actually closed off segments of it? And I suddenly realized, and it comes out in, in through a couple of characters in this story, that survival, as an as a person as an individual, often requires us to do things that we didn't think we could do. Right. It requires us to uh, do stuff that, uh, in the spur of the moment, involved betrayal. It involved like uh, really. Bad insight into your own character, okay. and after it's over, you
0: say, "How could I
1: have done that?"
0: And then you say, "Well, if you hadn't done that, you'd be dead." I'd rather be a coward for a minute and be alive for the rest of my I mean, life. Absolutely, that kind of thing, I guess, right?
1: And and so a lot of people, when they look back, we—I did a story a few years ago at CBC. It, it was a part of a documentary about a horrifying thing that happened. And yes. we're going
0: to use that as a tease. Uh, okay. Horrifying thing that happened. You have to stay and listen to the rest of this conversation. <laughs> When we left, we left you hanging with a tease uh, about a horrifying story that you covered for the CBC. Yes, it was. It was a historical
1: story. It was about uh, World War II, uh, Western Ukraine, Eastern Poland. That was always changing. And a, a group of uh, probably twenty-five to thirty Jews survived a Nazi uh, pogrom that that murdered like, two thousand of their neighbors mm-hmm. and relatives by hiding in the basement of a, um, of, a of a warehouse. And they, they went down there. They thought they were going to be down there for a few weeks. And they ended up down there for a very long time. Uh, some very prominent Canadians are, were directly connected to that and Americans. They, once they got out of there, they spread around mm-hmm. the world. we was a hell, a hell of a story. And and we kept running into these walls. Nobody wanted to talk about it. Well, I'll, I'll sort of to cut to the... To the, to the crux, it turned out that one of the ways they... First of all, they made a deal with, with a Ukrainian warehouse manager that they could have the basement of the warehouse, okay. and he would supply them with food for money. Yeah. And they they had enough resources to keep them going for a very long time. But one of his relatives discovered a young woman down there that he took a shine to. And so part of the price of their survival be, became sending that young woman upstairs periodically. Okay. when. That's horrible. Yeah. Yeah. And so the 25, 26 people lived through this awful experience because of the sacrifice made by that young woman who had to live with it for the rest of her life. And they had to live with it. So suddenly I understand because we found one person in California who would tell us what really happened there. And I suddenly said, yeah, well, that's why the woman in Toronto, that's why the yeah. mother of the guy who's trying to find out, that's why they won't talk about it because they feel so guilty. And I suddenly said, gee, that explains an awful lot about the, the, the selectivity of memory, the difficulty of remembering certain things. These people, never mind the, the poor woman who had to go through this, who ended up her days in Israel, she wouldn't talk about it either. But all the other people were so ashamed that, that uh, of their own impotence. And they shouldn't have been ashamed of it. Impotence is not something you should be ashamed yeah. of because impotence is impotence. And they were powerless. Do we allow this young woman to keep going upstairs and doing what we can't even think about? Uh, and Because if we don't, we're all dead. Yeah. So it, it explains to me why a guy like Pierre Cormier in this book, uh, he doesn't want to go there because for six years when he was directly involved in the civil war in lebanon uh, associated with a a real-life mass murderer uh, he just cannot believe some of the things he's done and the only time he thinks he can talk about it is when in this little cafe in toronto he bumps into a guy who he believes shared the experience Mm -hmm. and now maybe we can sort of carve out a little place where we can deal with our, our demons. And he's wrong about that. So the, the moral of the story for me and the idea I want people to take away is that uh, memory is, is a complex and very private place for people. To get in there is sometimes difficult, if not impossible. And there are probably very real practical and objective reasons why it is so difficult to get in there somebody did something mm-hmm. that was out of character but it was essential to survival and there's a there's a conversation in this in this novel between a a woman who is is descended from holocaust survivors and she's saying to young Cyril you know don't be hard on your father people have secrets and some of those secrets are the key to why you and I are able to talk to each other. I am here because people survived something. I am not going to question how they survived. I'm just going to appreciate the fact that they made sacrifices that enabled me to be here, and they suffered. And, Cyril, you may be a similar beneficiary to me. You are here because your dad survived. If he hadn't, you wouldn't be here. Your dad survived because he did what was necessary to survive. So just accept that. Don't question. It's not so important that we know what he did or what my grandparents did in in Poland or Germany or wherever. So let's just move forward. And so memory, we get nosy about people's memories sometimes. And I think sometimes maybe we should just let, let them go and assume, okay. All we have to know is that they compromised and their compromise enabled them to survive and their survival
0: enabled us to survive. So let's just go forward. The conversations in the book, and you mentioned one there, Cyril and Ari have uh, another very intense exchanges. And I'm wondering if, as a writer, your uh, ear for dialogue, which not only is entertaining to read and and keeps the story alive, but moves the story forward – a lot of dialogue in, in in books doesn't really do that. But when I when I was reading this, I kept I, I kept thinking, oh, the the seed for the next part of the story is being laid here mm. or laid here in the in the dialogue. Um, does that come from doing? I don't know how many interviews you did over. 50 years of journalism, 10,000, 20,000 interviews yeah. and and just getting the cues from people yeah. as they speak. Well, it's you you know this and you're going to you're going into TV.
1: Yeah. And and I take away from TV the, the practical reality of getting a story out with with a limited number of devices. You can't hire actors and you can't write yeah. whatever it is you want. So you have to deal with the kind of reality that is there. So you when you're listening to an interviewee, you're listening with an ear to how what he is saying is going to move your story forward. Yeah. And you're also listening to the quality of his, his communication. Is he interesting? Is he clear? Is he colorful? And if you got those three things, you, you, got, you got charm. You take so, gold, yeah. You, so, you, so you develop an ear for and, – and, of course, coming from the East Coast where we, we both grew up in an extremely oral yep. culture, <laughs> people who could speak well and clearly and, and tell stories with a shape – and a point uh, were were highly valued mm-hmm. you we, early on in your life you 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 learned the value of of a good talker so I had to listen for all the years I worked, especially 24 at the Fifth Estate, yeah. where it was all interviews with people in, in, in complex situations who had to explain stuff. You're constantly listening to how they talk, what they say, how they structure a, a sentence. And and you develop an instinct. Like When, when I'm writing dialogue, I, I'm not writing dialogue. I invent a character. The characters are composite of a bunch of people I met in, in my work mm-hmm. or, or in my life. And... And once that character is
0: created, I just let that character talk. That's what Douglas Copeland told me. He told me when he writes characters that it's almost as if they're speaking to him within yeah, his head. Yeah, it's
1: transcription. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm just trying to keep up with <laughs> You're the, just the vessel. I'm the vessel, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm typing away as fast as I can to keep up with the, with the flow of, the, of that language. Wow. It comes it, For me, it's one of the most rewarding and probably easiest part of, of, of writing fiction is when this character takes off. And 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 at the end of you know the writing period, I, I often sit back and say, "Wow! When I got up this morning, I had no idea mm. that this was going to be on the page. That character has taken on such a reality that is no longer that he or she is no longer under my control, and he or she will say the most extraordinary things
0: sometimes that I had never even thought." It just comes up. It's interesting. We've only got a, a few minutes left. Uh, I'm speaking with Lyndon McIntyre. The book is called The Only Cafe. You can find it everywhere right now. It's in stores right now. Something that you said there really uh, grabbed me because I feel this way. You said, when I woke up this morning, I had no. There, there's a blank page and I had no idea. And for me, and it, this comes from a film that I saw last year where a man is trying to be a poet. It's called Patterson. Check it out. It's a really wonderful film. He wants to be a poet, uh, but he doesn't want to show his poems to anyone. He writes them in a little notebook. Something terrible happens, and the the notebook goes missing. And near the end of the film, this isn't a spoiler, it's just what happens in the film, he's sitting on a park bench, and he starts up a conversation with an older man who's visiting from Japan. The older man from Japan is also a poet. As it turns out, they talk. Man reaches into his bag and gives him a blank notebook and says, remember, every page is a possibility. Mm. And for me, that has yeah. changed the way I think about writing. Every page is a possibility. Mm. You can do anything you want on and it. And see,
1: this is the key to... You see, we, there's no such a thing as writing a book,
0: in my opinion. Right. You sit down and you you write
1: a line, you write a page. Uh, if you sit down to say, "I'm today I am writing a book, you <laughs> will go back
0: to bed. Yeah, you will. It will drive you mad. It will yeah.
1: kill you. So... Yes, every page is a challenge, and as long as you see it as a challenge, you're just going to sit and look at it. But if you look at it, this is a possibility. I just have to get my head into the lives that I have already devised mm-hmm. and let stuff happen there. And it, you know, I have a personal framework in which that stuff is going to happen. But what happens in that frame is happening uh, in the lives of people that I have already invented. And, and they will talk and they will fill that page up. And sometimes uh, I have no idea how it happened. Mm-hmm. And those are, the, those are the magical moments yeah. when you sit back and you say, you stand up and you walk out of the room you say, wow, where did that come from? Who wrote that? And, and that's, what, that's what brings you back the next day because the possibility that that could happen again brings with it such rewards and sense, sense of satisfaction and achievement that you just keep coming back looking at it and when you finish a book <laughs> you start another one <laughs> because you do you you get hooked on that kind of a
0: payoff do you always have a project going i do
1: and and for the very sort of probably a neurotic reason that when i have a finish a project like this one i don't want it to be like my only child
0: right. with yep. my whole yep. life yep.
1: invested in it I want to move on to another one so that I don't get too emotionally invested in how people react to this one. I mean, this could be the biggest flop in
0: Canadian (laughs) literature. It does not feel like it's going to be that. You never know. I mean, (laughs) uh,
1: my cliche, my personal cliche, you can write a good book, but you can't write a successful book. Right. There are too many factors that go into success in any field. So I write a good book. That's all. Okay, fine. I think it's a good book. I had a lot of help. A lot of people wouldn't not have put it out there if it wasn't a good. So fine. Will it be a successful book? I can't care. Although it's natural to care. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to transfer my expectations to another project.
0: That's it. We covered a lot of ground with Lyndon McIntyre, his novel. The only cafe is in fine and not so fine bookstores right now. Check it out. It's really wonderful. That's all the time we have for the house of Crest this week. We're going to shut the doors, turn up the heat a little bit and luxuriate with a novel. We're going to reread the only cafe maybe. It's really terrific. Thank you for coming by. You know, make sure you come back every single week. We put a new show up every Monday. You never know who's going to stop by for a visit. And who knows, maybe it's one of your favorite people. So come back and see us and spend a little time with us.